1: Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you on a cloudy afternoon in the mountains of Utah. My guest this week is YouTuber and fantasy author Shad M. Brooks. Shad is known for his massively popular YouTube channel Shadiversity, where he dives into fantasy and medieval tropes, culture, and technology. Shad also talks more pop culture and reviews over on his other YouTube channel, Night's Watch. In addition to his video content, Shad is the author of the epic fantasy novel Shadows of the Conqueror, which came out in 2019. Shad and I talk about self-publishing, giving and receiving criticism, the sweet spot between realism and fantasy, expanding the scope of your business as a creative professional, and the process of learning and growing in public. Enjoy my conversation with Shad M. Brooks. So, do you work out of your house?
2: Well, yes. I mean, we have a... I do a bit of both so we've got a i built a work studio out back which is a separate building and that's where we do all the filming and that's where uh, my editors and co-hosts work and things and so we're, we're, but that is on the same kind of property so it's still technically house here uh so yeah basically oh that's cool yeah i got my computer here in the lounge room right near the main tv and so i usually sit back on the couch because i have the my screen is on a, like a, an arm lever thing and I can literally just put, rotate it. So it's in front of me when I'm on the couch. <laughs> and that's where I kick back and play my games and, and things.
1: Yeah, that's very cool. I, so is I, I'm not, I don't know a lot about Australia. Is kind of the place that you uh, live and work, is it more the countryside?
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm in country Victoria, a uh, beautiful area of the world. And uh, I mean, we're about an hour and a half away from Melbourne City. And uh, I've kind of this is the area I grew up in most of my life. I grew up out like so I'm in the a, a township at the moment, uh, but I grew up a half an hour or twenty minutes um drive up the mountain on like on a you know, decent sized property it was around twenty acres and so uh, that was just brilliant and so I've always kind of just been in the bush. Just <laughs> so being used to that.
1: Yeah, I grew up on five acres, and I and I now live on a third of an acre in kind of a neighborhood, and it's <laughs> it's a very different experience. <laughs> but I, I I feel like those kind of big yards often kind of give you when you're a kid who who likes who who has a big imagination. Those big yards are really helpful to, to kind of foster that.
2: Oh yes, I my uh, my dad uh, owned a construction business, and so he started it. Um, on the a property that I grew up on, and so there were building supplies and timber just everywhere, and I would just make endless uh, wooden swords and be running around hitting trees and playing pretend to my heart's content. Like it, it was a wonderful place uh, to grow up in. Oh, that's great! Yeah, I, I
1: agree. <laughs> I, I feel like every everybody who does something kind of creative, there there was something about their childhood that kind of. You know kind of kicked them towards that a little bit mm-hmm. and uh and and oftentimes it's it's a big yard or you know maybe not having brothers and sisters around or, or something that just kind of made their kind of imagination kind of foster more than maybe you know maybe their athletic ability you know things like that <laughs> certainly worked for me yeah so do you, uh, with your business, with kind of shadowversity and um, your 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 channels and everything, it, is that all kind of centered around you? Because I know that you have a lot of other people that do some of the videos with you and things like that. But are you kind of the main business owner and kind of developer? Yeah, yeah. And so uh,
2: I started it all just on my own, um, uh, you know, making videos. And, uh, uh, and it's funny because I started the YouTubing without the uh, uh, expectation that it would take off. I just wanted, one, I wanted to um, correct a lot of incorrect information that was out there on things that I love, swords and stuff. But I also wanted to try and uh, build a fan base that I could launch my writing career off. I wanted to be an author before I ever wanted to be a YouTuber. But YouTubing took off and it became really successful. That was phenomenal. And that, of course, really helped me out when I did publish, finally. Uh, the book's done great. Um, and so I've built it up all from there because... Uh I guess I've had a good exam. my dad's always been very good businessman, and uh you know he uh started his own like i said construction business and things and so I always knew that uh YouTube would be a springboard a platform for me to be able to branch out and uh, and do other things because I've always wanted to do other things, not only writing i've got weird zany you know dreams of building castles and stuff um and so i just uh, yeah it's uh, like there's endless opportunity and so from YouTube, I, you know, I've been selling T-shirts as well. I've been trying to um, explore possibly, like, uh, so I've been developing a graphic novel adaptation of my book, oh. uh, but we've run into a big kind of uh, brick wall at the moment um, with printers, <laughs> finding, uh, like, a reliable printer, because um, I do not want to sell this thing and then have this massive delay and not fulfill through on the commitments and stuff. And so I'm really hesitant cagey about that but a graphic novel is done it's like sitting there um (laughs) we just need to find a, a really good printer that's reliable and also a reliable fulfillment method uh but yeah that's just another thing that I'm exploring and I've been branching out into uh and uh now that i've got you know guys with me we've been we've started a, a new channel which is uh, reviews as well as gaming skits and it's just kind of finding ways to make a living of things that you enjoy doing is is the uh, the conceptualization of my life really in terms of my career
1: path well and i i find um it more and more it seems like kind of creative professionals end up almost by nature having to have like a tiny empire um <laughs> to really kind of create and and kind of sustain what they do for a living um mm-hmm. and i mean like i i live right up the street from brandon sanderson and he has so many people working for him if i pop over there i rarely see brandon i always see all these different employees that i you know i now know and i'm friends with uh but it's it's funny how that kind of develops. And I, I see my own career kind of getting a little bit bigger with little mm. side things and, you know, kind of growing and growing and growing. And I, I talked to Daniel green uh, about this a little bit too, with his YouTube channel um, with just kind of the way you kind of have to keep looking um, and, and it just kind of keeps going and going and going and you're always looking for the next thing.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's a part of it's, I guess, growth really. Cause as soon as you find some success. Well, I mean, if you really want to push that, you want to capitalize on that success because it leads to other success. It leads to other opportunities as well, which is just phenomenal. And it really is a matter of taking advantage of the opportunities that you have to begin with. And I find it interesting because some people say um, uh, becoming success is more about luck. And I, and I wonder about that because I think, especially if you're living in a modern nation, you have so many opportunities before you do that. All you need to do is uh, leap on, jump onto and capitalize like, I mean, I wanted to be an author. I, I nearly got kept down in grade six because I was such a terrible writer, and, but I really loved creating stories, and so I needed to learn how to do it. I didn't have the money or time to go to uh, college, university, or anything like that. But, wow, there are these phenomenal resources online, like Brandon's writing lectures. And uh, also Scott Card also has great articles on writing as well. And then, you know, there's Writing Excuses, his podcast. And so I just dived into everything like that. And, uh, you know... I've had the equivalent of almost four to five years worth of university level education on creative writing that I haven't had need to pay a cent on. That is a phenomenal, like astounding, you know, opportunity that, spe- that was there the whole time. All I needed to do was jump on it, actually use it. And then YouTube is another one. It, it's sitting here right in front of us. And it just, all it took was grabbing a camera and starting. (laughs) My content was not great when I started out. It's all a matter of improvement um, and learning and trying to get better. Um, And that's kind of the process. And then you build, and then those are the opportunities you take yeah, adventure of first and then of course more opportunities come once you build off of that success as well because you know sponsorships come in and then people send you ideas for videos and then people invite you to go to events and things and then you get to also meet people connect with people i mean and then brandon like after my channel had really established itself brandon ended up reaching out to me well we kind of reached out to each other almost at the same time because uh, he wanted to pick my brain as the weapons consultant for Stormlight 4, which was absolutely awesome. And again, it's it's one of those things where um, you need to kick it off. But once you get the momentum, you can keep pushing that momentum and um, opportunities lead to more opportunities. Success can build to even greater success, but it does take continual work and commitment, absolutely. And expanding, finding what you can delegate off. Like, like I used to do all my editing and oh my goodness, when I first hired my first editor, ah, it was like a, I a new life, <laughs> like I had a new lease on life. It freed up so much time; it was amazing. And so, there's a lot of juggling, though, admittedly, because uh, especially with starting the new channel, there's a lot more work uh, you know required in it. And So, uh, it's always going to be a bit of a process of trying to figure out: okay, what can I delegate? What do I need to do? Um, uh, and what, where can I find the time to do the things that I really want to do as well?
1: Yeah, for sure. I uh, when I when I decided to start a podcast. I, I was t- talking to a bunch of friends that do podcasts and I was trying to get an idea of what to do with it. And, uh, and I had a bunch of people say, oh, well, if you're trying to cut down on expenses, uh, then just do the editing yourself. It's easy to do. And my first thought was immediately... I am an epic fantasy author. I do this for a living. I do not edit sound. I don't even do podcasts for a living. <laughs> I will pay somebody to do this for me.
2: Yes. Very, that's, it, a, that's a good idea.
1: <laughs> right. And it's, it, it does, there is points in kind of your career, especially when you're, you know, like when you're basically a small business owner, like that you have to decide on, okay, what do I cut from me personally? You know, what can I pay other people to do? Yeah. And I, and I honestly, it's, it's kind of terrifying <laughs> it's scary to like let go of control at times yeah um but also like really good for your time
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. oh yeah absolutely and um gee i i needed to register as a um uh, as a single business sole business owner uh early on just because the money was, I was like oh gee i'm actually making money now i need to register and from that time on it's been a balance of like Yeah, taxes and uh, figuring out, especially when you start to uh, bring in employees and uh, like uh, permanent employees as well. That's when things can really get interesting because it's not cheap either. (laughs) (laughs) No. And then, yeah, having to balance the books and make sure everything's there. Yeah. it, it, it's also satisfying as well. Like you get a sense of um, I, like, I don't know. I I derive a, a measure of, you know, satisfaction and fulfillment out of uh, achieving things that are difficult yet uh, fulfilling and worthwhile at the end. And so also it feels great to be able to be the means to provide a livelihood for other people. I think that's an incredible social good. And, um and also working with, you know, when you find the right people working with these great guys, it's just, heaps of fun uh and so yeah it, it is tough you're absolutely right uh and hopefully at the end of the day it will be satisfying fulfilling as well
1: right right i um that's one of those things that i kind of uh i'll it gets a little bit uh under my skin when you um when you talk to people that are like the super hardcore self-pub writers the mm-hmm. ones that are very much into traditional publishing is evil kind of opinions <laughs> And something I actually kind of take some pride in is as being a successful, traditionally published author is that I am helping in some small way to provide jobs for lots of different people. Mm -hmm. You know, I've got cover artists, I've got editors, I've got publicists, I've got all these people that, that, you know, maybe I only get, you know, what, a a week of their time every year, you know, essentially, Mm -hmm. but in that time, I'm kind of, I'm providing at least a little bit of kind of income for these people. And I like that.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. That I'm. I'm a, I sit like I, I see benefits on both sides in, in big ways with uh, self publishing and traditional publishing. Uh, I, I self published my novel, and that's been really great. And I have to admit, I I, I really appreciated the control. I, I could be a control freak at times, especially with like I want the cover exactly right and stuff. And so I I, I had a lot of fun working directly with the um, uh, cover artist. And, uh, and getting it just right and things, uh, that was a lot of fun. But oh boy, it did take a lot of work. I mean, pro- oh, producing the audiobook version. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> it was a nightmare. I'm just saying it was tough work and a lot of work. Um, it, it turned out phenomenal. I got Michael Kramer and Kate Redding to, to do it. Um, but oh, the, lo- the, uh, the hoops I had to jump through because, so, I mean, I wanted to, of course, there are multiple ways you can do it if you're going to self-publish through Audible. Uh, but um their platform to self publish is called ACX and ACX wasn't available or open to Australia. And so to do it, I had to register. Yeah. I had to register a us-based LLC Um, and to do that, I needed uh, like an actual us address. And so I needed to talk with um, some us friends who'd be willing for me to use their address for the LLC. I needed to register that. I needed to get the us um, tax identification number, all this stuff um, (laughs) to be able to publish this art audiobook and when I got all that done um and so I was able to uh, you know uh, register on ACX and then I still needed to produce the audiobook and make sure it fit all their specs right so I had to teach myself audio engineering and all this stuff and so uh when I do my next book, I'm pretty sure I'm just going to go through it into third party. There's some good companies like you can actually still um, uh, self publish audiobooks through on uh, Audible and stuff. But you can there's companies that will do the work for you, uh, and so I'm probably just going to get them to do it next time. <laughs> I
1: I kind of wish that when you when you've got like writing classes, I wish that they would provide examples like that and be like, look, if you're going to publish a book, it's not just about being an author and doing the work to write it. Mm-hmm. This is the other stuff that you might have to deal with.
2: Oh, yeah. And I mean, I'm lucky that uh, if if something is not overly complex, I usually feel confident enough that I can learn it, do it. And, and I mean, it's, it's been kind of like uh, the story of my life is uh, teaching myself the things that I want to learn. And, and if I want to get really good at it, I dive into it heaps, like, you know, creative writing and Uh, video production and things but yeah when it comes to uh self-publishing if you really want to handle a lot of stuff you need to have really or at least have the willingness to expand your skill set to hit a lot of things like with the cover there's graphic design but also layout make sure it hits all the right specifications that they want uh there's also I formatted the entire book the the actual it, it, it a material of the book using um Volume a program called Volume and which is only available on Mac so I had to buy a completely separate MacBook teach myself how to use that program and for I I did everything myself and I'm not sure it's the best choice but <laughs> I was happy that I got the control made sure it got, it was up to my own uh, expectations and standards but yeah, so internal formatting, graphic design, audio engineering, review. Uh, <laughs> and uh, there, there were some, you know, serious curveballs that uh, I w- needed to learn along the way. And finally, I have this video that is just waiting to be made where I have a list of like unexpected curveballs that when you self-publish that you might just want to be aware of that certainly I ran into. Um, and uh, like, oh, gee, even getting the color tone correct on the cover because your screen does not reflect the correct printed color tone. And, uh, and so the hardcover, when it was released, not, it was too bright. It was like, Oh, this is garish. And so I had to go back and try and fix the cover. And it was already released at that point. And I'm sorry, we're sweating bullets trying to fix that. Oh. And then there's the the formatting, like the position of the picture of, of the actual cover art when you're formatting it yourself doesn't perfect. Like if you center it, on your uh, on the format they have, right? Does it? It doesn't mean that it'll be centered on the um, on the finished copy. I mean, I've got the I've got the version here, but yeah. it won't be centered perfectly there. And so I had to try and get it as accurate, close as I could. Order a printed version, get the real version, which took like you know three days to double check that it was correct, and it wasn't. I was like, ah oh, no! <laughs> so I had to do all the process again to try and fix it. And so there uh, there are some ultra rare special edition versions of my hardcover that has the writing off center and if uh, you happen (laughs) to order the book during that window well you're you are very blessed to have this ultra rare special edition version and no one else has it's a collector's item now
1: don't don't you love living in a world where where our mistakes can be you know a fans like you know something that they search for
2: I, I hope that's the way they'll see it.
1: Fingers crossed, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's fantastic. Hey, PageBreak listeners. Brian here, rudely interrupting myself for a bit of a plug. Making a podcast isn't free, and I'm hoping that you enjoy it enough to pitch in a pittance. To do so, head on over to patreon.com pagebreak, where you can toss as little as $3 a month into the tip jar, a month to get the podcast ad free and early and $10 a month to hear your name in the credits and feel a smug sense of superiority. You can also buy my books from your favorite retailer or direct from my website. Thanks to everyone who contributes. Now back to me. So you say you started with writing videos. Where did that tip over the line to end up being what your YouTube channel turned into?
2: Well, when I started, I uh, had a primary focus on mainly just swords and how they're used, but I always tried different co- content to see what my audience might be interested in. I even tried some drawing tutorials at one point because earlier on in my life, I wanted to be a comic book artist and I didn't realize that I didn't like drawing. I just liked creating stories and then depicting them. Uh, and, and so when I started drawing other people's stuff, I hated it. But if I was drawing my own stuff, I loved it. Um which also was the big breakthrough for me to discover I liked writing because I thought I hated writing. But just like with drawing, if I was writing something that I enjoyed that was my own thing, it was the best thing ever. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I, I always was trying different things, but the, predominantly when I started it was very much just medieval-related, swords-related stuff, but I've always done the occasional writing video, and that's been fairly consistent. And, uh, of course, the because medieval uh, History, medieval culture is so tied with medieval fantasy, and I've always loved it. Yeah, from the very get-go, I've always kind of loved to uh, explore the intersection between medieval culture and fantasy. See, uh, I mean, I, I, I'm a purist. I love, you know, things that are very actually to medieval period, but I always acknowledge that I love Changes in fantasy, this is why I also I love Brandon's work a lot, is that I feel when you go to fantasy, try and at least put it on the foundation of something that's believable, realistic. And you can draw from history a lot to do that because then that just increases the immersion. And so I love fantasy that is founded on when I say realism, because people say magic isn't realistic. No, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I say when I say realism, I'm talking about believability. Like give your make be consistent with your magic, give it rules, make sure it, you know, things follow through. Yeah. Because uh, I it's interesting that like I have a whole video. Like I love discussing these things. And so the video that I was I'm just referencing now is the discussion between soft magic and hard magic and my own kind of interpretation of view on it. Um because I find it really, really interesting. My own take is that I actually feel soft magic does has rules. Um, the audience might or the reader might not be fully aware of what those rules are, but you're going to be educating the reader on what the magic can do just by literally what it does in the story. You establish something right there. X Magic can do X. And then under yeah. what conditions can it do X? And therefore, if those conditions are repeated later on the story and someone logically m- might want to do that same magic thing and they're not, well, there's a potential issue there. And so. I'm getting getting distracted (laughs) from the thing, but yeah, so uh, just exploring those concepts, and I've always loved... fantasy that i find more believable more immersive and that's a lot of the kind of content that i do on my channel i explore okay how can we look at it or this fantastical element in this way from either a more practical realistic lens acknowledging the fantasy but uh, to uh, what i feel I'm, i'm kind of going for with a lot of my content and videos in regard that focus on this is about believability uh increasing immersion and being consistent with the things that you end up creating in your story the rules that you make and stuff and again because this isn't really pushing against soft magic or people that uh, like um the mystery or anything like that but i do really feel like i personally i can't stand what stories are inconsistent they break their own internal you know rules and stuff like that and especially i then there's the small nitpick things when people just you know they have armor and the armor does nothing and it's chopped through like it's you know tissue paper and it's like why are you even wearing the armor then and and saying you know when weapons are used incorrectly these are my ultra nitpicky things because i love medieval culture and weapons and so uh from the very beginning the larger portion of my content channel has been all right this is a sword this is what it's called this is how it's used these are the strength limitations these are all the other weapons let's talk about those this is armor let's analyze how these weapons and armor are done in this film or the castles from that property and stuff uh yes yeah, so i've been a lot of different things
1: do you do you feel like kind of becoming someone who professionally nitpicks at pop culture do you do you feel like that has kind of made you enjoy watching things and reading things less
2: yes and no because i also enjoy nitpicking so. <laughs> um, but no i it's interesting how that has evolved because even more so now because i've started a more focused review channel is, uh, well, for one, usually stuff that um, was just bad and you could tell would be bad from the trailers, I just wouldn't watch mm-hmm. <laughs> And so, you know, I try just focus on media that is genuinely good and I want to watch the stuff that's good. But now because we have this review channel, people want me to ultra nitpick and tear apart things that are not good and stuff. And so oh, I was like, all right, I'll take the bullet for you guys. Yeah, and, and I do find joy in in Breaking Apart. Because what's interesting is even when I, earlier on in my writing career, I also liked watching content that was reviewing things from a very objective lens and also finding all the areas, even in properties I really enjoyed because it was an educational experience for me because this would educate me on what to avoid in my own writing. It's like, oh, you're right. That's a big plot hole. It helped me start to look at story more objectively and therefore look at my own writing more objectively and say, oh boy there's a big plot hole Mm -hmm. and I'm actually rewriting an older story right now. And this is going to be my next book and it's a full rewrite now. And um, I uh, had this old prologue. I was like, Oh, this old prologue might work if I put it back in the story. And I went to look and it's like, there's a massive plot hole in this entire structure. And so I'm I'm rewriting that, but that was uh, completely above my head when I wrote that originally. And so it really helped watching this media. That was looking at things, uh, and honestly, yeah, criticizing it. And uh, the types of reviews, of course, I like, are the ones that are as fair and balanced as they can be, and they'll praise thing when it deserves to be praised. They're not just there to rip it apart. They're actually on the lookout for something that is genuinely good, and when they find mm-hmm. it, it's really satisfying. That's what I'm like now is when I when so, when I watch something that is genuinely good. Oh, I, I enjoy it a hundred times more than when I just watch anything and I could go along with whatever it was, if it was good or bad, I'd have, I generally enjoy it. And so the enjoyment of media has both increased, but also the nitpicky side. I, I, some I legitimately don't. I get frustrated and even... <laughs> there's a good recent example on Night's Watch, which is my other channel, uh, because I've been watching the new wheel of time show very carefully and i have complicated feelings on it there have been things i've really liked i really have liked episode
1: four but oh boy episode five that made me legitimately angry (laughs) episode five is the most divisive among my writer friends. Yeah. Everybody either loves it or hates it. And there's no in between. And <laughs> I I've been, I'll, I'll be totally honest. I, I, I talk about this on the podcast a bit is that, that I'm my writer brain is always going. And so I feel like I've over time started enjoying things less. Cause I'm always thinking about your know, plot and character and all that stuff. And I've been really trying to just turn the writer brain off to watch wheel of time because it was, a very formative experience for me in my like teens um and i haven't read it for 17 years and so i'm trying to just be like okay i <laughs> vaguely remember this stuff i'm gonna just enjoy this um but it's interesting seeing the reactions because the fan base is both massive and very very uh opinionated mm-hmm. and yep. getting those reactions uh from both fans but also from professional creatives is really interesting.
2: It, it has been. And so it's funny, like, uh yeah, I, I had a, I have a lot of trouble with episode five. I, I, that one actually, like I said, it made me angry, but, the rant, I mean, I've been loving just ranting about it. And it's been almost cathartic. And, it's just, and what, what's really interesting, the people who've been watching my reviews, that's one of the reasons they've been watching those reviews because they find that it's calling it, it's like therapy, it's cathartic and stuff. But that, and the interaction with the fans afterwards and stuff, that has been just tremendous fun. I've been just loving that. And so even with media that I am not enjoying while watching it, I have really been enjoying the kind of the after show stuff, the, the, the discussion. Right. after The fact that's been, that's been great.
1: Well, and I got to imagine that kind of part of what you kind of sell as a YouTuber is, you know, a, a lot of it is education, obviously, you know, you want to teach people about things, mm-hmm. but I imagine part of it is, is literally people saying I'm tuning in to see Shad get angry about something.
2: Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly what people have been saying about the episode five. thing. <laughs> <laughs> and again, this is a, This is one of the things that I've been very lucky and blessed with Um, uh, because I had a lot of different things that I wanted to do growing up, but it was always related about story. I've, I've, I've been just immersed in these fantastical worlds and stuff. And so one of the things I wanted to do, it was be an actor Mm -hmm. Um, and I've always enjoyed performing and I've always gotten a buzz out of it and that's really helped me out on the YouTube side of thing because it is a performative art not always granted because YouTube is it's a very interesting there are different things that you can do to help um, become successful on YouTube and if you had just got great information content you could be just one of the channels I love is Practical Engineering The guy is just really smart, and I love his practical examples of engineering, and I've always had a deep interest in, you know, engineering, science fields and things, and he's not a performer. Uh, he is he's, uh, he's very kind of monotone in his delivery and stuff, but his content is great. And so you can absolutely become hugely successful on YouTube if you can make, like, just hit one of the main primary points really, really well. Being a bit of a performer and character also helps. And uh, I certainly lean into that quite heavily in my videos. Um, and I just let my personality go wild at times and I can get real ranty, screamy, and, uh, and people can <laughs> certainly enjoy it. But... I don't purpose, I don't do that, I guess, disingenuously. I'll only scream about something if it genuinely makes me scream. And it's usually in frustration. Like the, the only other time I've screamed that much was when I was reviewing, uh, rise of Skywalker.
1: <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I, that's all we have to say about that.
2: Yes. That's all we have to say. Nothing more
1: needed. <laughs> um, Oh, that's fascinating. I so do you feel like as a critic yourself, do you look at criticism differently? Like, I mean, you would have engaged with it obviously as a YouTuber and for years getting comments back from people, but then when you put out your first full length novel, did you feel how did you feel that you kind of kind of engaged with that?
2: Well, when my novel was released, I cannot think of another time in my life where i have felt more emotionally vulnerable <laughs> than that time i mean you know i i've received criticism and feedback from my videos but uh, a small video that you work on for maybe a few days to a week is a vastly different thing to a novel that you've poured your you know the, uh, the saying blood sweat and tears into and things and all the work that i put it, put into it and uh, and yeah that i was four boy <laughs> That was, uh, but ah, when those positive reviews started to come in, that was one of the most validating and elating experiences of my life. And uh, then, uh, you know, then there's the matter of taking a step back and, and uh, we see, and looking at the criticism. Now it's funny because I've, I've heard different people have different ways of, you know, approaching criticism for a work, like a book, which is a very personal thing. It's a big time commitment and stuff. And some people don't even read any reviews and they just let their agents send them the good ones and stuff. Um, for me, there's probably, I'd, look, I don't know what's the best way, but I've always been very active in li- I've I'm trying to read heaps of reviews, uh, um, written as well as the video ones that are made on YouTube and stuff. And uh, it's been really, well, I don't know how I would feel if most of the reviews would have been negative. Maybe then I would have had to, because you can only take so much of emotional beating. Um, I'm lucky that most of the reviews are very positive, And so maybe I just like inflating my big head. But it's also very encouraging because those positive reviews just push me to want to write more and things. But it's not to say that I don't not read or pay attention to the negative views. No, I pay attention quite heavily. And uh, I like to hear constructive feedback. And so when there is something constructive, I really do listen closely. But I also need to be very objective and aware that there's a good portion of criticism that is personal taste and being able to Mm -hmm. differentiate between this is someone that is venting that they didn't like the book just because they just personally don't like distinct elements and stuff, uh, versus someone who was actually trying to say something more, all right, this is a, an objective thing that could be improved. Um, because there are certain things in my book that I did knowingly uh, that I put in because I liked it. I wanted this to be in the book that I knew going in, not everyone was going to like that. And I find it really interesting when people bring up those exact things, like the very thing that I, before I even published, was like, I'm, I'm doing it anyway. I like it. That's why it's going in. And then they try and say, this is objectively bad. I'm like, no, there's the people <laughs> who really, because what I, because what's really funny is on those notes specifically, there's a whole other side of people that say this is some of their favorite parts in the book. And yeah. so, yeah, I I think, you know, authors, they shouldn't just take on every single criticism that comes, especially when you're hearing people saying polar opposite things on the very same point that they're raising. It's like, in that case, you need to make, be objective in your own standards, what you want to, you know, what the work you want to make is and make a call on that. And uh, and so, I'll, yeah, I find the feedback very interesting.
1: I I definitely, uh, when when my first book came out, when Promise of Blood came out, and I kind of was very, I was attached to reviews all the time, just reading them constantly. And I, uh, but that like, it made my eyes cross when I'd get a review that said, this is a terrible book. The characters are all one note. The plot is too slow. And then the next review would be oh my gosh, I love the characters, they're so involved and the plot moves so quickly and you're like, oh my gosh, I don't even, my head's going to explode. Yeah, I know. It's,
2: a, it's amazing that people can get so stark different impressions and that really ultimately it, it comes down to their own subjective taste and mm-hmm. their, their opinions and someone can have vast, obviously vastly different takes and views on, on something. Well,
1: how how do you feel about kind of the process of doing something long form like a big epic fantasy novel versus the short form kind of uh the videos that you do like you said there's the difference between something that you spend years on versus something that you've spent a couple of days on uh but i got i got to imagine that that there's something that there's different type almost different types of dopamine that you're getting from these two different things because you get the little tiny shots from a video coming out every week or a couple times a week or whatever. And then you get that big shot of that
2: giant novel. Oh yeah. You're right. Well, you enjoy both. Uh, both have like, I mean, finishing the book and getting it out there and, uh, seeing people love it is, uh, I mean, it's a lifelong dream, so it's hard to compare that to. With the videos, it's interesting. I'm always very um, aware and trying to make the best content I can based on the time I have available and things. And when you make a video that's really well received, that's really, really satisfying. Uh, The videos that don't do as well, it's, it's interesting because there's a difference between a video that doesn't perform well versus a video that is received poorly. I'm, I'm lucky that very few videos are received poorly. I try and do my research and I work. Now, it's not to say I've never made mistakes. I have, uh, but I have more control. I have a certain amount of control. One, because there are videos that I've made that will receive fine, but as time goes on, I've learned more. I've looked back. I don't like that video. I'm not. And and there is far less of an issue with me taking the video down. And there have been videos that is like, I just don't agree with that anymore. I'm going to take it down. I think it's um, not saying the right thing. Uh, or I just make a correction video. Uh, it's interesting about being able to fix something after the fact. You can actually, I, I have more ability to fix, like, for instance, if a typo, some points out a typo in a book, it's like i have more control to fix that than I technically do out of a YouTube video. I can cut things now. I, you, you weren't able to do this early on, but now YouTube has um, tools uh, online that you can actually kind of edit on videos that are already published. And it's mainly you can't you just cut things. You can't put new things in the video, but you can take things out. And so if, uh, I may, if there was a slip of the tongue, cause I ad-lib my videos and sometimes mm-hmm. in my, uh, over uh, my, I have a way of over-exaggerating sometimes it's like, Oh, I probably went a bit too far with that, that comment. I can easily cut it, fix it and contextualize it. Um, uh, luckily. There's been fewer times when I've just made a big mistake, but there has been the occasional one. And when I do that, I'll just make a video correcting myself. Uh, that, that's a lot easier to do than in those cases. They're making big changes to a book, I suppose. So it, it's a bit of a balance, but in terms of the satisfaction I derive from it, the the video, there are there's like a group of videos where... I get really, really ha- satisfied and happy with how they turn out. And they're usually ones that um, are presenting new information. This, because I'm about to go into explain something, and the thing that I'm explaining is really kind of shocked me, uh, really pulled me up. Like, I never imagined that I could be in this position or that I could achieve something like this. And this is where this side of YouTube becomes incredibly fulfilling. And it's the fact that my channel has grown large enough that in some instances, I've been, been able to shift the entire narrative or conversation on a certain topic uh that's because for instance a good example is a funny topic but it's the matter of boob plates female armor um yeah that that the, the fact that sometimes armor was made to accentuate a female's form would get just raked over the coals online everywhere and i'm lo- looking at this and i have a Strong historical context, because I love medieval history, and I look at a very interesting equivalent of the codpiece, which was uh, something that accentuated <laughs> the, the the male form that was literally made on armor. And I'm seeing this huge equivalence for male armor. And and so obviously there was this very common thing in uh, in that they adopted fashion into their armor design that accentu- accentuated certain attractive features of their time period of the day, and because most men wore armor and it was, it was very rare for women to wear armor, actually there was occasion when they did, but because it was so re- so much more rare, people weren't making armor that was directly made for women. But if they did, I was looking at as like it's a very good chance that they would probably end up making armor that would present the female form if it was such a cultural thing. And in fantasy, we see a lot more female warriors, and so I made. I've made several videos on that topic and it's amazed me that after those videos have come out, the, the entire conversation on that subject, nearly all online, if this subject ever comes up, <laughs> people always bring up the references I raised in my video and the, the entire mindset online seems to have shifted. There's still people that disagree, but they are few and far between now from some pretty stark evidences that I wrote in my video. And the fact that that seems to have shifted the the worldwide conversation on that topic has just met. I'm like, oh, wow, that's that's unbelievable. I can't believe that I could have that level of influence. That's amazing. And that's, one, it, it, it is a bit scary because it makes me realize I have to be really careful about the things I say at times because um, I do not want to accidentally spread something that's uh, incorrect or anything like that. And this becomes a sticking point because I also have strong opinions. And so, in an area, in a subject, in a like a subject that's more ambiguous in terms of what's correct and what's not, there needs to be a level of interpretation of the source material. And so, therefore, I interpret it, interpret it as logically and as factually as I can. But that can lead me to different conclusions that other people have. But the people that have different conclusions, instead of realizing that okay, we're still looking at the same source material, we're not like you know making things up out of thin air. But because we come to different opinions, they can take it so far and say no. Chad was completely wrong and is spreading misinformation and it's a difference of opinion. And so that's where it can get really difficult to try and balance that side of things. But I still, of course, try to be as correct and factual and double check my sources as much as I I possibly can, because there is that level of influence. And so there's been a number of things that um, topics like that, that I've been able to do on my channel, which has had a much larger effect than I ever kind of predicted. And that is just incredibly fulfilling
1: do you do you find it a little stressful i mean like going from making funny if uh, funny well-researched videos to actually being reference material like is that a little bit of pressure
2: <laughs> it is um the thing is i have this wonderful philosophy and it's that it's okay to get things wrong because mm-hmm. if you get something wrong you just correct yourself. <laughs> um, and so that's the philosophy I had going into making content from the very beginning, If I get something wrong, just admit it, fix it, make a video. And, uh, the reaction to the way that I, cause I do that often. I, uh, recently I made a, a video on the medieval longbow, um, correcting its actual place in history and the pros and cons and that video was addressing some over exaggeration that I gave to the medieval longbow in its place in a medieval context and so I'm still doing it to this day and uh, I actually I find it really satisfying when I get to because I uh, because being wrong is just the process of coming to greater truth if you can really recognize that it is and I've always said I'd much rather know what's correct than be right and so if you can Point, show me the evidence, references. Oh, that's awesome. I know more. And then it's just a matter of correcting the record, making a video. And uh, and then you, people respond really positively to that as well. And so that helps take away the <laughs> the stress of, uh, of the fact that there is a lot of people watching my content and that it can affect, you know, um, mindsets or viewpoints or opinions uh, <laughs> on a large scale. And uh, you just got to do your best. And it's also... Because I've made videos correcting other, you know, um, other videos that have gotten things drastically wrong. And I've always said, like you can go back to my first time, I I did a reply to MatPat from Game Theory. He did a video on knights versus samurai versus vikings. And there it was, it was a good chunk wrong. But I even said in that video, Because I saw other creators responding to this video saying kind of that they were effectively saying, shame on you for making this video. You should take it down. You should have never made it. And I always wondered, no, not, I don't really agree with that because by him making that video, he's at least brought the subject matter to a much wider audience. And by doing that, that's led a lot of people to the video where I've been able to show the corrections. This is how it actually was, medieval period and stuff like that. And so that was literally an advantageous stepping stone for someone coming to the correct information. And so even if someone inadvertently spreads misinformation, if, if it's not, nothing dangerous, like, you know, put out a fire by pouring gasoline on it or something like that, <laughs> it, I can make sure it's not dangerous or anything, but it can actually be the very catalyst for them learning the truth, where if that video was never made that had that misinformation, they might have never learned what the correct information was because they never had that thing that grabbed their interest, that caught their attention, and so I still consider it a net positive. And even with me, if I accidentally make something that isn't correct in my process, hopefully that will be the, the catalyst that will lead someone to the correct information if that's me learning it myself or if someone's correct ends up correcting me like I do with other people as well. And so that helps me kind of that's my kind of philosophy, or way I view it, and the way I'm able to kind of process it all.
1: Well, and that was something I kind of picked up on, and I've got a bunch in my notes here. I picked up on that in your YouTube channel immediately. Was that it was very fascinating to me that that you your channel te- seems to be much more of an evolving conversation, both with other YouTubers and yourself. I thought that was really fascinating because you don't often, at least in the world that I kind of occupy as just an epic fantasy writer, you don't often get to see a public version of someone editing themselves or, and and engaging with other creatives in a way of trying to kind of learn more.
2: That is something that I just love about the community that I, so we call it the community of the sword. And this is a collection of, um, you know, online creators that make sword like related content. And so this is like Lloyd of Lindy beige, Scala Scarlet Raffaello from Metatron, Matt Easton sort of scholar gladiatoria, Todd of Todd's workshop. Uh, and then there are a whole host of uh, um, additional creators. Sorry if I haven't mentioned everyone in it, but they're, they're all phenomenal. And this It's kind of like a tone, the standard of this community was set before I ever became a big voice in it. And it was really, I I honestly credit Matt Easton from Scholar Gladiator for doing it, where he would make these really respectful replies to some of the other creators in there just saying, hey, I really like the video, but there's a bit more information we could discuss on it. It'd be really respectful when he disagreed and things. And sometimes he just wanted to talk further on it. And that kind of set a standard, a tone. One, when I saw him do that, I was like, that's brilliant. Uh, And, uh, and- Uh, Another example is Scarlagrim. I remember um, he made a video on the Viking shield once and another great creator who's in the same sphere, uh, his name is Thrand and he has a YouTube channel named Thane Thrand. He made a reply on saying, okay, you said these things. We're not exactly sure it works that way because we've had the experimentation Skull, he made this really humble response video saying, I agree with him. And I think it was too hard on himself. He was really kind of hung up that he felt he got some things wrong. But the fact that he was so humble to just admit it, when I saw that, as like, that's what I want to be like when I'm making my content. That's really admirable. That's the thing that made me subscribe, actually, to Skullagram in the early days. And so I just, I really admire these other creators that have been so respectful and set this wonderful kind of just um, standard tradition of... Respectful conversation on these topics, being willing to acknowledge when someone has something different to say, and what's been awesome is other creators that are you know are coming into thing. They kind of doing the same thing, as long as we maintain this respectful kind of standard. And it's been something that we've been maintaining. And I'm I'm very mindful to maintain that standard as well when I'm e- responding to people outside the community and definitely within, because I love these guys. They make awesome content. I've learned heaps from them, and it's just for not it's just wonderful to be a part of it. And so when we have uh, a topic that Either we disagree on or we're adding more conversation on. It's phenomenal. It's awesome. And so then we promote each other in the in the exchanges, in the conversation. And at, at the net benefit of it all is that we end up knowing more at the end of the day. And that's like, it's, how great is that?
1: <laughs> that's very cool. I, I've always had a very strong desire to not be considered the authority on anything. Because <laughs> uh, it, it feels like a lot of pressure, which is weird because now I'm a... Reasonably successful epic fantasy author, and so some people think I'm a bit of an authority on things, and they put me on panels at these big conventions and all these things, and I'm, I, I try to always phrase everything I say as just a dude who makes shit up and is decent at it. Uh-huh. <laughs>
2: I've always said from the very beginning is that I'm an enthusiast, all right? I I never have considered myself an authority, though some people do look to me as one. And that's an interesting contrast that I need to process and, you know, deal with respectfully. But I've always said, don't consider me an authority. Double check what I say with sources. I, I do have very strong opinions and I will state things definitively, especially when I can mm-hmm. see some strong evidence behind it. But at the end of the day, don't believe something just because I said it. I've always said Double check what I say, and if you come to the same conclusion, that means you agree with me, not because I said it, but because, you know, you've also looked into the subject as well. In the matter of authority, it's really weird, because I look at heaps of people who are far more well-read and studied on subjects and things, and know far more than me that I consider an expert, and I'm not there. Even close. Yet then there is this vast difference between me and a true layman who doesn't know much about the topic at all. And then they very much look to me as someone who's well read and informed on the matter and things. And uh, also, people have appreciated the fact that I I don't necessarily come it from come to my analysis from a wholly academic position because I love fantasy. I actually, come to it from the mindset of both. I want to see. I've always done videos and my analysis, especially when it's regarding how. These factual things are integrated into fantasy from that mindset of looking at it from the both both worlds. It's a more historical factual position, but also the context of the fantasy setting as well and how do they mesh together. And that's the very thing that Brandon mentioned, why he wanted to pick my brain on Stormlight 4, because he appreciated that's been my approach. I could understand a context of the weapons being used in a historical um point of reference but also the point of reference of his world and being a big fan of the stormlight archives and his world and uh, the differences that you know of the evolution of that world and where it might alter the way weapons and armor and things could be integrated into it is important to really get a good grasp on and so in that sense it's interesting because i do wonder like who would you want to get as a, a consultant? Because I, I know there are great people who want to get it. But at the same time, I understand that you would also want someone who understands the world as well. And if I can fulfill that role, that's awesome. I'm always like, yes, hand up. <laughs> I'm happy happy to do it. Um, but also, like, what's what's great is because I do have a lot of context in the academic fields and stuff, I know all these people, uh, I can contact them. And uh, there's a couple of things that uh, when I was consulting for brand, I was like, I'm going to double check this. And I was able to throw out some of the context to get some good references and information. It's like, that's it, got it. And so that also helps out.
1: Well, and it, that is kind of one of the building blocks of being an epic fantasy author is is walking that line between what is familiar and real and what is the fantastical element in your world and making it feel real for the reader. I I, I think a lot about this idea of, of kind of, um, it doesn't matter okay, and this might be like personally insulting to you, right, but we'll I, I, I don't know, in, in my brain I kind of think it doesn't matter how Factual something is in a fantasy novel as long as it feels factual to the reader, and that's mm-hmm. kind of like when you get into talking about anachronisms and <laughs> okay, when did this technology mm-hmm. actually happen in our world and all that stuff.
2: I, I completely, I completely agree. I can draw from a direct example from my own novel. Uh, so I am not a physicist, right? I actually don't know the uh, the language of math, uh, and uh, that's been a weakness for me. Yet I wanted. In the book, that they have a technology that's founded on the magic, where they use a material dark stone that operates their sky ships, and I wanted a science built around that technology. Yet I don't know true science, and if you have the knowledge, I think utilize it to to the most you can because I have the knowledge when it comes to weapons, armor, medieval setting, and so the book I'm currently writing because it's it's a very ah oh, it's a full on medieval fantasy. I am drawing on all the medieval knowledge i have and i'm loving it and there is this depth that i'm seeing in what i'm writing currently that honestly i haven't seen in a lot of other you know contemporary fantasy novels because i love their subject so much i'm like i'm actually putting the the swearing structure in the book reflecting what the swearing structure was like in the medieval period and so because now we use like cursing profanity and swearing as as a synonymous terms so where in the medieval period they were actually distinct things like to swear was to swear an oath but you 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 could swear an oath incorrectly, that would be a very offensive thing. And then you have profanity, which is taking, you know, um, something that is holy and speaking of it in a profane way. And then you have cursing, which is literally cursing someone. And so if you curse someone that was not justified, that was really serious. And, so, and that one is interesting, is the one that actually followed through because in a lot of cultures, damn is can still considered like cussing. Because when you say damn it or damn you or something like that, that literally comes from the cursing, like damn you is like damn you to hell. That's a serious business. That's It comes literally from a medieval historical context of how they um contextualized what was offensive and so i love that like in my book i have all that where all the accurate kind of you know offensive swearing and stuff and uh, and that's something that i can draw on because i have much more understanding in that realm yeah but going back to my analogy of the book i don't know physics and so I could spend, I don't know how many weeks and, uh, and you know, I, I all power to people who, uh, and I know Brandon does this a lot. He gets um, consultants in and stuff like that. And uh, I, I could do that and that, and awesome. Or I could just make it believable enough for the reader. Yeah. And so there was a part where I wanted the main character to, say that there's this mathematical equation to understand what the uh, threshold is on this dark stone to make it be able to move. Because uh, usually dark stone is locked in space and it's called the luminous threshold. And so I was like, all right, I, I, I just kind of made up but made sure it sounded right where he listed this mathematical equation where it was like mass times the uh, L with the light square <laughs> uh, equals this. <laughs> but as long as it was factual enough, it sounded right enough, that's as far as it needed to go because it needs to be, you're absolutely right. It needs to be sold to the reader in a believable way. It didn't need to be exactly the same. Now, it's interesting. I've had some physicists look at that equation and then because it's vague enough where I didn't need to use exact terms where I was able to see D, which is represented dark zone, M that might I, for me it was mass and then i did and <laughs> the equation i did squared or cubed i can't even remember but i was just talking about, would it be squared or would it be cubed i don't I, I know what it generally means but i didn't know how to accurately translate to know no the, the the light threshold would be a squared equation or a cubed equation no idea i just kind of that one's all right i'll do that um but the thing is though because it is a fantasy thing if it's squared or cubed doesn't matter because it could be either one i get to choose as the author and so i I didn't really need to know and but it's been cool to see physicists just kind of all right it'll kind of break down like this and then I had someone say it's kind of like similar to the coefficient of static uh something (laughs) like okay sounds good
0: (laughs) yeah that works when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring
1: The showrunners of the of the Western show Deadwood, they talk about how they, because it's very famously lots of graphic swearing in the show. And they talk about how they had originally thought about, well, let's use t- period appropriate swearing. And they started writing it and realized, okay, this is going to sound like Yosemite Sam. It's going to sound like a ridiculous <laughs> cartoon character because that's just how people spoke at that time. Mm-hmm. And and so it's that weird thing that, you know, uh, that writers, even writers that do historical stuff like that, have to kind of decide how they're going to present this towards a modern audience.
2: Exactly. And
1: and make them kind of get what's going on and make it feel real, whether, rather than having it be real.
2: Yeah, I, you're absolutely right. You have touched on two really interesting sides of, I guess, um, interpretation or translation when it comes to something like that. And there are two two camps. And you can do and I've been out and enjoyed both sides. A great example is Wheel of Time, Robert Jordan. He created his in a a, a whole complete swearing structure of in the book that is foreign to ourselves there are some similar words like bloody yes we have blood in the real world but they react to bloody far stronger as a swear word in wheel of time and other things and they have blood and bloody ashes and the one that made me really laugh is when uh, a character elaine in the book starts to collect cussing and swear words and stuff and there was this one that she picked up which was like mother's milk in a cup which is like this really offensive thing and she's mouthing, mouthing, that's, that's, that. and then a couple of scenes later she gets frustrated and blurts it out and everyone reacts like what the heck but I mean, it's not offensive to us, but Jordan did a great way of selling that this is offensive in this world setting. Mm-hmm. The thing is, though, the audience, they're never going to react to Mother's Milk in a Cup as like, an, um, they won't have an emotional reaction because it's just not a swear word to us. Even when it's contextualized in the book, we can understand why the characters are getting offensive, but we're not going to re- respond that way. And so the other option literally is, is to translate into a modern kind of, um, uh, Thing to get the reaction that to to kind of give the audience the same reaction that the that the characters in the book would an example that I use for this and I find this really intriguing and I've had discussions about this with some of the other sword creators um the the movie A Knight's Tale love the movie by the way it's one of my favorite uh in the beginning it has modern music playing we will rock you and you, it's very out of place for a medieval setting and uh, I was watching like uh Uh, either a commentary or after thing, or it was the actual discussion from the, the, the director, why they chose that and what he wanted. He wanted the audience to feel the same type of adrenaline that the people of the day would be feeling when watching jousting. Uh, and so he wanted he wanted to translate instead of the literal music, he wanted to translate the emotion that people would have had then. But to do that, he felt he needed to use modern music to get the audience to feel the same emotion. And so he was trying to translate feeling and emotion of the of the time period, not the literal same music. And I found that really intriguing. And to me, it is an intriguing thing because you're right. You, you, you sometimes need to choose between you can have the literal thing of what's in the world, or you can try and translate the emotion. But to do that, sometimes you need to use real world swearing or other references to get the audience's reaction. Because we're a modern audience, we're going to react differently to things. And that's and, yeah, and I can see value in both sides. I usually draw a line if it's like it's funny because. Night's Tale is such a such a great fun movie. It's not trying to be a historical documentary either. Yeah, uh, I I will I still will pick it apart for the historical inaccuracies and things, but at the same time I get what they what their intention was, and I think you, what is the intent behind the work matters a lot. Uh, and so I'll be far more critical of something that's supposed to be depicting a a proper historical event. We, and even though Knight's Tale is based in a historical time period, these characters are mostly fictional. It's kind of based off of it, but so many liberties are taken is, is a different character. Um, and so I can give that mountain more of a pass than say uh Braveheart, which is still a phenomenal movie, but the historical accuracy inaccuracies in Braveheart are, are extreme. Extreme. And right. I, and then and people people actually watch Braveheart and they come away thinking they that that a lot of people get educated on who William Wallace was from Braveheart. And so I do feel that there is a bit of a responsibility in uh, when you're dealing with true history to actually try and depict it in a in an accurate way as best
1: you can. Uh, right, and and with something like um, with something like the Knight's Tale, starting with uh, starting with We Will Rock You. That is almost. That's just. That is telegraphing to the audience that this is what kind of a movie it is.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's like don't take this as a documentary. It's a good. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that they had. I'm not sure if they did it intentionally, but if it was, I'm really happy that they had the forethought to do that because setting the tone is really important. Uh, because then hopefully, because people talk about subverting expectations it seems like the subverting expectations has not been playing well for people the in in modern media these days last jedi uh but <laughs> sometimes it certainly can i like a good twist is it can be great but you'd need to be out have the like forethought foresight uh, to be able to execute it well because if you don't and then just diving into I'll subvert everyone's expectations usually just leads to disappointment and annoyance in the audience.
1: Yeah, and and especially when you're coming at something that has a pre-existing audience mm-hmm. that you're literally making to take money from them. <laughs> you have to give them what they expect, yeah. or at least you have to give them something close enough to what they expect yeah. for them to come away happy.
2: Or, or and this is when you need to do it correctly, if you are going to subvert what they're expecting, you need to give them something Definitely as good, minimum or better. If you replace yes. it with something worse, oh boy, will they rage.
1: And <laughs> it's, That's the greatest sin.
2: Yes, exactly.
1: It's the greatest sin to turn something on its head, but do it badly.
2: Yeah. And, and you're literally dealing with things that people love. Like people have strong emotional, sometimes like it, like it helped, has uh, molded who they are as individuals. Like the... Mm-hmm. the because I think everyone knows subtexts we're talking about Star Wars a bit here. But like Luke Skywalker, the, one of the greatest heroes in, in media, like an icon of just incredible hero, heroism and forgiveness and all these great things. And then if you're going to try and mess around with someone beloved as that, you should do that very cautiously and very respectfully.
1: Well, and I talked with uh, I talked with Ari Salvatore on this podcast about exactly that. I, I talked about how killing Chewbacca was the moment I stopped reading Star Wars. But then when I became older and when I became a professional author, especially, it became much more easy for me to be sympathetic to like the position that he got in which was an executive told him to kill somebody Uh. (laughs) and and more sympathetic almost to the idea of oh we need to shake things up we've got to do stuff i'm not sympathetic to the execution but i'm sympathetic to the idea yeah and and so you, you kind of come at these things from a different perspective when you're a creative professional versus just a fan.
2: Yeah, I, I could not imagine what it'd be like with people saying you have to do this thing, especially, you know, that that's not going to work well. But they're like, no, we want as like, oh boy. Mm.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, can, it can get a little rough. I guess the question is, how much do you find yourself writing to the audience you know exists? versus, and this is both for your books and your videos, um, versus, uh, writing to what you want to be creating.
2: So far I've, it's always been, uh, um, the latter. I've only ever made content to, well, actually YouTube is a little different, but for my writing always to what my tastes are. And I've always just hoped, trusted that if I like it, there's going to be a lot of other people who must be out like it too, that share my tastes. And, uh, and it, not everyone is going to share that taste, of course. But so far, that that's worked out quite well. Um, I don't think my writing career has advanced enough to the point where, well, it's funny. There are some interesting predictions about the sequel to Shadow of the Conqueror. And uh, I, I already, I came into it knowing that I wasn't going to write the sequel right away, that I wrote it more as a standalone with possible sequel potential. And so I've always been happy to let Shadow of the Conqueror sit for a bit. But the theory crafting that has come up about what they are thinking is happening in the sequels, some, some are really like, that would be an enticing story. It's completely different to what I have planned, but I would be enticing. Wouldn't that be interesting? And so at the moment, I I I haven't been changing anything because I have some very fun plans for the sequel, but I wonder, I guess it'll be because the more it progresses, I wonder if that will increase, what influence that would have on me. Don't know. When it comes to YouTubing, there's definitely, when I see content that people are enjoying, I was like, okay, that's working. And I'm more than happy to make more content like that, that people are enjoying. And essentially, because that's not necessarily, I've never seen that as me doing stuff that I wouldn't really have done otherwise. But I do let the audience feedback guide the type of content that I move towards as a YouTuber. But it would never be to the point where it guide me to content because i i don't follow fads you know like when everyone was making videos on fidget spinners i look at that and say that's really dumb <laughs> because but it's in the algorithm everyone's watching fidget spinner videos like, and so i rarely ever i jump onto fads because i want to do things i enjoy um uh, and uh, and look sometimes that might actually hurt me in the long run with you know how videos perform and stuff like that but i got to make stuff i enjoy that's the, that's the baseline and uh, and so uh in that sense I, yeah i rarely ever follow what the, the the trends are but if my audience is liking something that i've put out that i've enjoyed making it's like okay i'm happy to give you more of that
1: yeah yeah that's totally understandable i i do think i do think it's going to be very different between kind of long form media you know like a novel versus uh something that you're putting out and that you need to be producing for for algorithms to be honest mm-hmm. um because that's got to be that's got to be kind of a different. I don't know. A different creation, a different kind of thing going on in your brain in terms of how you create and how you continue to maintain an audience. Oh, yeah. But also continue to be interested yourself because the moment and I, and I I got to imagine this 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 is definitely for novelists and I got to imagine it's for YouTubers that the moment that you start getting bored and you start kind of just doing it to do it people pick up on that so quickly
2: yeah absolutely and that's the uh, cuz a lot of people try and start to do the whole YouTube thing without realizing how much of a slog it can be. It's, it's not easy. I, it's a long-term commitment. I, I was making uh, weekly videos for a flat out year. Um, but no break, no, just continually doing it and without making a cent. And so, but that's also really beneficial because it meant that I was doing it because I was enjoying it. Because if you're not doing this for the enjoyment, it's going to be very hard to get through the treadmill because there is a, a grind on on the side of YouTube. And so I've been able to get through it because I I'm passionate about the videos I'm making. I love the subject that I'm making, and I'm re- and I enjoy it. And it's it's a great feedback thing where because I love. The response, I love the whole structure of, you know, the the community interaction. I love reading comments. And even to this day with a much larger channel, I read uh, a vastly high proportion of my comments, especially on videos that just dropped recently. Because I love that interaction, I love seeing what people are saying about it, and I find it really fulfilling. Um, and I also love watching videos that are made. You know, I watch heaps of YouTube content. I love being up to date on what's being spoken of in our community. What's what are their discussions, and if I have something interesting to say, because it's it's there's another side of things. Is there's a big commotion or a like, trending topic? that I don't have anything that I know I could contribute to, even though it would do me well to make a video on it. I, I won't, I'll never force it. But if there is something that I can ma- I talk about that's it, that's trending everything, well, then it's a, you know, match made in heaven. Happy to do it then. And, uh, and those videos, are, they could do really well. Sometimes they don't. It's just, it's a balance of things. But definitely enjoying the process is nearly... <laughs> I feel it's almost necessary because, uh, yeah, people are going into it. They don't realize that this is, uh, it can be a difficult job at times. There's a, there is, there is. Definitely a burnout aspect to YouTube that you need to be out of balance. And and it's hard at times. I admit, sometimes it gets the better of me and is where I'm just totally exhausted. But of course, what gets me back into it is that I like doing it. I'm passionate about the topic, especially when there's like a topic that I want to share with people. It's like this is a really interesting thing that gets me going.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and it's because you're not just doing the writing part, you're not just doing the creating. You are also doing the performing, which is two different types of kind of being a creative. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there one that you prefer over the other?
2: Uh, I've always loved the performing side of things. It comes out naturally. With Shadowversity, I dedicate a lot more mental energy to the performance aspect. I want the presentation to be polished. I want the information to be correct. And so I do a lot of takes because even in this casual conversation, if I pointed out, people will be much more aware of it. Usually uh, it's one of those things people aren't aware of until you point it out. But I, I have a natural way of uh, kind of stuttering my speech. Where I'm like,
1: uh, 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 and
2: then I'll just keep going and stuff. In a shadowversity video, nah, don't none of that. And so there's a lot of cuts to make sure the delivery is clean. And it's interesting because that takes it takes a lot more mental energy to film a Shadowversity video than say a video that I'm the videos I'm releasing on Night's Watch, which are casual conversations, very similar to what we're doing here, where it yeah. doesn't need to be as polished, where it's just talking with some friends about interesting things. And as it gets going, my performer side naturally comes out because I get ranty and, and things. But it's not something that I need to make sure is on, ready to go at the very beginning. It, it usually, will just flow into it. And so, there's a different mental energy needed to make just these two different types of content. And uh, and sometimes the mental energy to produce a Shadowversity video, I just don't have it. I wake up, I was like, I I just don't I just don't have anything in the tank for it. We gotta work on other things. We gotta delay the thing. It's just not there. Um, where and and so that's one that you did, you need a balance. You need to be aware of it. It happens. Um, and uh, that doesn't happen nearly as much on the Night's Watch content because. There's a natural flow and it's more, more casual like that. In terms of what I enjoy most, I've always enjoyed performing. Um, and I probably like the prep work is interesting because the prep work is from my own casual study. And I do that just normally uh, for fun. And then once I have enough information, then I ad lib it. So I don't actually write scripts. I will ad lib my content unless it's like a dedicated cuz then there are many times when a subject comes up that I just get into a, a fever zone where I just don't need the information I start looking at I recently did that on Crusader Castles because I'm prepping for a video on Crusader Castles and I just got in this thing where I started casually looking up things and that sent me down a rabbit hole I was up until, you know, I think I, that was like a almost a six-hour study session just on Crusader Castles, looking at all the references, putting it all together. Uh, and so I, I, I rarely force the study just because I need, like you only have so much mental energy in a day. And so I usually that is devoted to the things that have to be done. And then I draw on a lot of the information that I collect just casually in my own media watching because I, I watch heaps of educational content just for enjoyment, mm-hmm. and and then I, that just builds until there's enough. There to make a video on, unless I naturally start to fall into like a massive study session, and I rarely force it these days.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah that's that's very cool. That's that's interesting how you go about that. <laughs> I um I I feel like I, I could keep going, but we I've kept you forever. Um, so uh, I I like to end these podcasts by just asking everybody a very simple question of what's the last thing that you ate that blew your mind?
2: Oh, that blew my mind. Huh. Or or
1: even that you just still think about.
2: That I just still think about. Uh, problem is <laughs> I was sick for like two weeks and so I've barely eaten anything. Only <laughs> <Literally laughs> just started to come out of it. That uh, Blew my mind. Uh, I know there was something recently, but it's, it's just not covered. Might have been a really good corned
1: beef. Oh, man. You know what? My dad always made an amazing corned beef when I was a kid. And I've never been able to replicate it, and I have no idea why. <laughs> I love corned beef, but only his, yeah. and it's ah, uh, it really drives me nuts.
2: Uh, well, my wife made this amazing corned beef not too long ago, and I was like, "This is incredible."
1: <laughs> did did uh, did she do it with like like a, 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 like potatoes and stuff in it too?
2: Well, we we always mashed potato with it, but um, uh, okay, it's the right balance of. Uh, because uh, when you make it, you add uh, some brown sugar. I think it's cloves, uh, and I forget the last one. But you're balancing that right, and because you don't want to cook too much of the uh, boil too much of the salt out, and so getting the balance between the length of time and the flavors that you put in with it, and everything can just hit this magic spot where it just is one of my most favorite foods. It's like oh,
1: incredible. Oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> I, I love I love a good roast. Like when I was growing up, like roast was the like that was the Sunday dinner, you know, like mm-hmm. it was, it was the, what, it was what dad had to do every week, uh, or, or whenever we were doing roast. Um, and it was always, I always looked forward to that because dad would put it in dr- before church. And then it would be an excuse to leave church an hour early to make sure that it's not, you know, getting, you know, burnt or anything, Mm -hmm. even though it wouldn't be done for five hours. Um, And, uh, oh, gosh, great memories of of roast in general, roast beef, corned beef. Oh, Ah, good. Kills me.
2: Yeah, Yeah, good stuff. Good stuff.
1: (laughs) That was YouTuber and author Shad M. Brooks. Thanks again to Shad for coming on. You can find links to his YouTube channel and his novel down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com pagebreak, or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Huge thanks to Kyle Anderson, Patrick Hunt, and Elijah for their backing on Patreon.